Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. My name is Dr. Lexi Eichelboom, and I teach theology here at IWU. And in the absence of our Luther Lee Lecture coordinator, Dr. Rusty Hawkins, who's on sabbatical, I also have the privilege of introducing this year's Luther Lee Lecturer. But before I do, let me first cover two housekeeping items. So, first of all, this morning is actually not the Luther Lee Lecture. We're going to be hearing from the Luther Lee Lecturer, but the Luther Lee Lecture itself is actually happening at 7 p.m. tonight in the Performing Arts Center Auditorium. So I hope to see you there. Second, let me first just say a few words about who Luther Lee was and why we have a lecture series named after him in the first place. So Luther Lee was one of the individuals that left the Methodist Episcopal Church in the 1840s to establish the Wesleyan denomination here in the United States. And these early Wesleyans, much like the holiness movement from which they emerged, were animated and motivated in no small part by questions of social justice. Specifically, these Wesleyans, like Luther Lee, were adamantly opposed to the existence of racial slavery in the United States and worked for its eradication. They were steadfast in rejecting the adornments of riches and instead committed themselves to lives of simplicity in solidarity with the poor in American society. And they were ardent supporters of women's rights. In fact, the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, the first conference on women's rights in the US, took place in a Wesleyan church. And Luther Lee preached the ordination sermon for Antoinette Brown, the first woman ordained to preach in the United States. John Wesley famously said that there is no holiness but social holiness. And these early founders of the Wesleyan church, men and women like Luther Lee, took this to heart and lived it out. So the purpose of the annual Luther Lee lecture series is to turn our attention as Christians to issues of racial inequality or economic inequality or gender inequality and to ask how we might be agents of justice and reconciliation in the midst of these divisive issues. And I want to be clear that we give attention to the work of social justice because it is in our DNA as Wesleyans and as Christians. So this year's Luther Lecture theme is on gender inequality. And I'm pleased to introduce to you our 2018 Luther Lee Lecturer as our chapel speaker for this morning. Dr. Beth Felker-Jones is professor of theology at Wheaton College. She holds a PhD from Duke University and her research and teaching interests are in systematic theology, particularly in the areas of Christology, resurrection, conversion, and theologies of body, gender, and sexuality. She's the author of several books, including Practicing Christian Doctrine, An Introduction to Thinking and Living Theologically, Marks of His Wounds, Gender Politics and Bodily Resurrection, and Faithful, A Theology of Sex. Jones is currently working on a book about conversion for Oxford University Press. She's also a columnist for the Christian Century and has appeared on the radio program On Point. She and her husband Brian, a United Methodist pastor, have four children, one of whom is actually visiting with her today, and they live in Wheaton, Illinois. 
Among other things, Jones's work is dedicated to thinking through everyday realities like bodies, gender, and sexuality from an unflinchingly theological perspective. Through her work, we learn, for example, that a Christian vision of sexuality is not about legalistic moralizing, but about living in accordance with the truth that our ultimate reality is a God who is faithful. And that while maleness and femaleness are important dimensions of our identity as human creatures, their significance has nothing to do with traditional gender stereotyping. We look forward to hearing what she has to say to us today. Please join me in welcoming our 2018 Luther Lee Lecturer, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's a joy to be here with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Um, greetings from Wheaton College, a sister uh, school to the north. Um, chapel is going on there at this exact moment as well. Um, I'm going to begin this morning with a reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 15 through 27. Jesus is talking. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord... Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. I wish I could have read that in something other than English, but that is not my gift. What a joy, though, this morning to hear the scriptures um, in other languages. Sometimes I think the first 50,000 years or so of eternity will be language lessons so that we can all praise God in Romanian and ASL and Chinese and Swahili and English. Um, so much beauty uh, there. Uh, in the lesson I just read from the Gospel of John, Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit, which doesn't seem to be about gender, which is what I've come to campus to talk about. It isn't about gender in the most obvious way, but it does teach us something about relationships, about our bodies that will help us to thrive as embodied, gendered sons and daughters of God. 
This morning, I want us to look at three truths about the Holy Spirit, truths in which we can find great hope. First, the Spirit is God with us. Second, the Spirit indwells us. And third, the Spirit offers us freedom. Our opponents aver that he is a stranger to any vital communion with the Father and the Son, that by reason of an essential variation, he is inferior to and less than they on every point. But no, he is divine. This is the church father Gregory of Nyssa. He wrote the words against the pneumatomachi, fighters against the Holy Spirit, a group who denied that the Spirit is truly and really God. Gregory insisted to the contrary that the Spirit is equal to, of the same rank as, the Father and the Son, and that this is the clear testimony of Scripture. Gregory is likely thinking of many aspects of Scripture, among them today's text from John 14, which displays to us the utter and unreserved intimacy of the Spirit with the Father and the Son, the intimacy of God to God. We see Gregory offering a litany of praise to the Spirit, identifying the Spirit's characteristics with the Spirit's very nature in a way that can only belong to God. Our opponents aver that he is a stranger to any vital communion with the Father and the Son, that by reason of essential variation, he the Spirit, is inferior to and less than they in every point. But no, he is divine and absolutely good and omnipotent and wise and glorious and eternal. He is everything of this kind that can be named to raise our thoughts to the grandeur of his being. He is himself goodness and wisdom and power and sanctification and righteousness and everlastingness and imperishability and every name that is lofty, and elevating above other names. That's the end of the Gregory quote. In our broken world, we've learned to believe that relationships have to involve inferiority. But Scripture testifies to the eternal relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as admitting no such thing. The story of Scripture only makes sense if the Spirit is truly and really God. The Spirit, after all, does what only God can do. The triune God, the living God, is three and one. This same God reveals to us that oneness and difference can truly exist together. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit comprehends real difference and true oneness within his own eternal divine life. The three persons of the Trinity are truly one, united in work and in will. That oneness is so deep and true that the Spirit can search the depths of God. It's a wild thing for Paul to say. Just as true, the three persons of the Trinity are three. The Father is not the Son who is not the Holy Spirit. The threeness of the Father, Son, and Spirit involve the kind of difference that indicates real relationship in the life of the Trinity. What is more, 
These features of God's life mark God's loving personal relationship with us. God loves unity together with diversity. In the Spirit's power, we are truly united with Christ, our Lord. Because Jesus has won victory over sin, we are enabled to relate to the Spirit and the Father in ways that parallel Jesus' relationships with them. In the Spirit's power, the people of God in all our diversity, including gender diversity, are also united as one, even as, in the words of theologian Catherine Tanner, the Holy Spirit encourages the uniqueness of our persons by a diversity of gifts of the Spirit. When thinking about the Trinity, I often encourage students to spend time studying the Gospel of John and attending to the many clues there about the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you'll look at John 14 again, you'll see that there's a lot to contemplate there. We see the Spirit's unity with the Father and the Son, the Spirit's difference from the Father and the Son, and the ways that God's unity together with difference affects our life with God. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you. And he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. We can notice here the mutual relationships between the divine persons of the Trinity. And notice how Jesus expects the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to be manifest among us. When Jesus ascends to the Father, when we can no longer see Jesus face to face, the Father sends us the Holy Spirit to us as an advocate. In Jesus, we're made children of the Father, and neither Father nor Son leaves us orphaned. God the Spirit abides with us and in us, empowering us to love. There is endless food for thought here. Jesus' words show us the unity of the Spirit with both Jesus and the Father. Jesus' words reveal to us the Spirit's unique, divine personhood. The world tells us, sisters and brothers, that difference and unity are opposites. That difference and unity cannot coexist. Sadly, sometimes the church tells us this too. But right here at the very heart of reality, within the very life of God, difference and unity are not opposed to one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, and they are each themselves and God's difference in unity doesn't leave us alone. God enters into relationship with us, and he does so in the most intimate way possible. Theologian Eugene Rogers points out 
various moments in Scripture where the Spirit does what he calls rests on our bodies. He does a compare and contrast between old and new ways of talking about the Spirit, and he highlights ways that the Spirit, quote, in classical Christian discourse, pours out on all flesh, and he bemoans that in modern Christian discourse, the Spirit has floated free of bodies altogether. Rogers asks a provocative question. What if the Spirit has grown boring because he no longer has anything to do with our bodies? He suggests that the neglect of the Spirit may be rooted in this fundamental error, and he insists that the Spirit is imminent in bodily things. One of the most marvelous truths of our faith is that the Spirit who is truly God, who is transcendent and glorious and holy and not like us, also chooses to dwell within us. The Spirit rests on bodies, and that's no small thing, but the Spirit also lives in bodies. He is, just as Jesus promised in John 14, in you. The crucial text is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The body is meant not for fornication, but the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? And here, all of a sudden, the Spirit's way of relating to us is all about bodies and sex and gender. And bodily matters, here it's sex with prostitutes, but I think we could expand it to other bodily matters, are spiritually important. One cannot split off the body from the soul as though what one does with the body is insignificant. Our bodies are purposeful. They're goal-oriented. The body is for the Lord. And what is more, the Holy Spirit indwells us so that our bodies become temples. Here we learn the miracle of the Spirit, holy and transcendent, utterly different from us, chooses us. The Spirit is with us and loves us and does not disdain us. Poet John Donne relishes relishes just this glorious contradiction. Wilt thou love God as he thee? Then digest, my soul, this wholesome meditation, how God the Spirit, by angels waited on in heaven, doth make his temple in thy breast. Digest it, indeed, this strange, sweet gift, God the other, holy, transcendent, majestic, magnificent, and eternal, takes up residence within us. Here is the gift, 
and the power of the spiritual life. And Dunn is quite right. Here is testimony of God's love for us that ought to provoke us to ardent love of God in return. We are being transformed by the Spirit's power. But it is also true that God is not yet finished working this transformation in us. The Spirit's work includes this present life, but also the life to come. And we saw a preview of what the Spirit will do with us in the life to come when that same Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So Paul tells us, If the spirit of him who raises Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. The spirit's work in giving life to our bodies begins today, and it will be finished in the kingdom of God. The spirit's work of resurrection is to transform us into creatures who, like our risen Lord, Live fully in victory over sin and death. And that is body work, which means it's work that includes our gendered bodies. Which brings me to point three. The Spirit offers us freedom. But we don't have freedom in our heads and in our hearts. Instead, we have a litany of tyranny a litany taught to us by the world and to our shame also by the church. Do more. Be better. Man up. Be more feminine, more masculine, less feminine, less masculine. Get different clothes. Bulk up. Trim down. Straighten your hair or curl it. Whatever. Do something to fix it. Get a tan. Lighten your skin. Master that makeup. Be more, be less, hide your longings, hate your body. Here, some, buy some products that will help you with all of that. Eat different, think different, be different. Hide your emotions. Measure up. Pretend it's all effortless. Measure up, measure up, measure up. And while you're at it, why can't you measure down? Change your body. Find a spouse. Make yourself lovable. Screw up your efforts and make yourself lovable. But the spirit of the Father, the spirit of freedom, says no. No, I am enough. Not you're enough, I'm enough. You don't need to make yourself lovable. You are beloved. I indwell you in your very flesh your male and female flesh, your gut, your face, your thighs, they're mine, and I love them. And you don't need to prove yourself. You're not for proving yourself. You're for the Lord. The Spirit is God, not sub-God. And we know that in God... Unity and difference fit together in relationship. The world says that the Spirit must be inferior, but Scripture reveals his full divinity. And the Spirit, who is God, loves your bodies. The world says that our bodies are a problem, but Scripture reveals them as purposeful and Spirit-led. 
The litany of tyranny says you need to fix yourself. The Spirit says you are beloved. You, yourself, in your body, in your difference. And that difference doesn't make you less than. I know that you have known so many hurtful things related to gender and your bodies. I know that you carry wounds. I carry them too. But I also know that God's love for you is something different, something better, something truly beautiful and holy. So I'm here to remind you that the Spirit of God loves you. You. That the Spirit indwells you. You. That the Spirit cares about your bodies as well as your souls. And that the Spirit offers you freedom in Christ to be embodied, gendered creatures in a way that is healthy and happy and holy. The Spirit surprises us, loves us, and empowers us to bear the light of Christ and to share God's grace in the world. What if, because it's the point of all human life, that's also the point of gender? Not to be strong or weak, or get married and make babies, or do or not do, or fill or not fill certain roles or stereotypes. What if God the Spirit loves us and wants to fill us up so that we can show the world God's love? And what if we're created male and female to bear witness to Christ through the Spirit's gifts of freedom, rejoicing, and joy? The Lord is the Spirit, Paul preaches. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In the freedom of the Spirit of God, we are transformed and able to reflect God's image and glory. When the Spirit tells us from within us that He is enough, that God is enough, that doesn't mean we won't change, but it does mean we stop trying to force ourselves to change, to conform to some gender legalism out there, and step freely into the change that only the Spirit of Christ can empower and enable. The Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, male and female, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Basil, another church father, imagines us humans, imagines our bodies, as sun catchers, radiant with the light of the Spirit. I'm quoting Basil here. Through him, hearts are lifted up. The infirm are held by the hand. 
He shines upon those who he cleanses from every spot and makes them spiritual through fellowship with himself. When a sunbeam falls on a transparent substance, the substance itself becomes brilliant and radiates light from itself. So too, spirit-bearing souls illumined in him finally become spiritual themselves and their grace is sent forth to others. We're meant to glow with the light of the spirit who indwells us. It's not our light. It's not our power. But still, we are the ones God makes brilliant in this way. Ourselves, our souls, and our bodies, our aching flesh. Will you pray with me? Spirit of the Father, I pray that you would set us free, moving among these, your beloved ones, and fill us with your light so that we can show the world the love of Christ. Amen.